Hello and welcome to today's lecture for History 256, uh, U.S. History Survey, uh, 1876 to present. Uh, last, last lecture we finished up the Great Depression, as I recall. Finished up the Great Depression, and so what I want you to do right now is I want you to go to on Moodle, and I want you to download the PowerPoint for Dictator Trio. And as you can see, the title of today's lecture is Cuckoo Banana Pants Dictators. They're nutty. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to make light of what's going to be a pretty down topic. Uh, I'll be talking about three dictators, two of whom you're, one of whom you're definitely familiar with, uh, another one of whom you probably know some stuff about, and one you've probably never heard of. Now, uh, if you skip to the next slide, uh, here's a little meme that I put in, what I think about, what I think I look like whenever I talk about history versus what I actually look like whenever I talk about history. Uh, I kind of wish y'all would be in person today because you could see me really go around like a crazy person, but I'm really trying today. Uh, today's not going to really be too chronological. I'm kind of going thematically. Uh, for instance, I'm going to begin with Franco who's actually one of the later of these. He's actually one of the later one of these. Mussolini's the first, but I like starting with Franco because he's a good prelude to uh, World War II. Let's do a little bit of background. Now, as you may remember, the Great Depression's really bad. Uh, it's very bad. Um, a lot of countries get desperate. Now, we talked last class about how the United States gets kind of desperate. Uh... FDR's New Deal does a lot of things the U.S. government had ever really done before. Uh, Seen its way as a kind of stave office going into further extremes. But in general, when people get desperate, people do desperate things. You might have heard the old saying, desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, I'm sure there's been a chance or two whenever you got desperate and you, uh, you did something you might not otherwise do. Um, I... Nothing really springs to mind. I don't know. Um, geez, uh, filling a joke here. Filling a joke here. If, if we were in class, one of y'all would say something. You would make a joke about it. But what happens is a lot of these countries go a lot further than they ever intended. Now, as I've mentioned, the Great Depression was a lot worse in Europe than it was pretty much anywhere else in the in the world. It was definitely worse in Europe than it was in the United States. Now, these countries I'm talking about today, uh, Spain, Italy, and Germany, they're not inherently bad countries. They're not inherently evil countries. I don't think anybody started out by being, hey, we're going to appoint this dictator and he's going to kill millions of people and everybody's going to die in this horrible world war. They don't think that. Um, but they go a lot further than they ever intended. They never thought it would end up like this, and yet here we go. So the first guy we're going to talk about, if you swap over is, here's just a quote. Here's a quote from Franco. Uh, Our regime is based upon bayonets and blood, not on hypocritical elections. So that right there kind of tells you what kind of guy Franco is. Franco is, uh, you know, he believes in real things like bayonets and blood, killing folks, not necessarily hypocritical elections. This is Generalissimo Francisco Franco. Now, as I said, Franco actually comes in a little bit later than the rest of these guys. But he's kind of the prelude to World War II, which we'll give a shot to. But Franco, uh, judged by the fact that his title is uh, general, if you go over one slide, uh, he is a military in leader in Spain. 
1936, he leads a revolt against Spain's elected party, uh, also the king as well. Uh, Spain has a king, actually, Spain still has a king. Uh, he calls this the Popular Front. There is a civil war. There's the Spanish Civil War. Uh, it's uh, pretty... It's actually a proxy conflict for World War II. Uh, Franco is supported by his fascist bros, uh, Mussolini and Hitler. Both both sponsor him. The U.S. stays out of it. The U.S. stays out of it. Uh, there are calls for the U.S. to do something, help contain the spread of you know a, a not-good person. However, the U.S. hangs out of it. Now, there are people who want to get involved in it. Uh, you have the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. That's a bunch of oh, socialists and other left-leaning people from the United States who make their own little military unit. It's actually one of the first um, desegregated military units. Uh, you actually have black and white volunteers fighting together uh, against... Uh, Franco's party, fighting for the loyalists, fighting for the people who are supporting the King of Spain. But Franco wins in 1939. Uh, after 1939, his rule was law. And he wants to get rid of all op opposition. And he does something with one of those two-word phrases that you hear it and nothing good ever comes from it. That word is secret police. Uh, yes, Franco brings in a secret police force. And nothing ever ends good that starts out with a secret police. Uh, unlike a regular police force, a secret police force can detain you without telling you your charge. Uh, you're, you know, in the United States, you're innocent until proven guilty. A police officer cannot just arrest you without telling you why. Uh, you can't just be slapped up in handcuffs and thrown into jail without the officer telling you explicitly what's going on, what are you accused of, that sort of thing. But Franco does that. Not only that, in 1947, which, if you notice, is after World War II, a law is passed that makes Franco head of state for life. It's another one of those phrases that doesn't end well. Nothing ever ends with, oh yeah, you know, we made it that somebody, the head of state for life, and everything got better. Uh, Franco will stay leader of Spain until the 70s. Uh, there's a, a great early joke from uh, early episodes of SNL where, uh, I think it's actually Chevy Chase who does it. You know, Gentilemissimo Francisco Franco is still dead. And then weeks later, they'll be like, you know, he's remaining valiant in his fight to stay dead. Uh, doctors say his condition is unchanged. It's kind of a fun thing. But Franco's in power for quite a while. So if you go over one side, you'll see what Franco does. First of all, he rapidly industrializes Spain. Spain was lagging behind in industrialization. And Franco rapidly industrializes it, mainly through steel. Uh, he really uses steel pretty strongly, tries to use it as a basis of industry. He also outlaws anything does not, that does not agree with his own religious beliefs. Um, theoretically, Franco is a Catholic. However, he's the type of Catholic that even the Pope says, you're not a very good Catholic. And then Franco says, well, the Pope's not a very good Catholic. And generally the Pope's kind of the barometer of who is and isn't a good Catholic. So pretty much Franco outlaws everything that doesn't go with his own version of Roman Catholicism. Um, earlier studies or other people might tell you he outlaws anything that's not Roman Catholicism. It's actually his version of Roman Catholicism. He also outlaws any language in Spain other than Spanish. Now some of you might be like, well, that's 
wait, what? No, the people in Spain speak Spanish. You might think that, but actually, there's other languages in Spain. Um, Spain, as we know it, was formed in 1492 by the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, uniting four kingdoms that were kind of separate, also kicking out the Moors. Uh, Still to this day, you have regions in uh, Spain, um, you know, Catalonia, uh, Aragon, places like that, which... Catalonia is a big one because I believe that's the one where Barcelona is in. And there was actually last year there was talk about them breaking away from Spain, making their own country. It's an autonomous region. They have their own language. Uh, Franco doesn't like that. Franco wants everybody in Spain to speak Spanish. Likewise, these autonomous regions, uh, their autonomy is stripped away. Pretty much everybody has to be under Franco. Now, Franco is not alone in this. If you look at that picture of Franco, you can see there's somebody in the foreground that he's, he's very happy to see. My, my goodness, Franco, you, I don't think I've ever seen anybody so happy to meet anybody. And that's Franco meeting his best buddy, who we'll talk about who he is in a second, but you can kind of tell by the back of the head and the hint of the mustache, it's, it's clearly Hitler. So Franco is out of World War II. Uh, even though he is closely allied with Mussolini and Hitler, he stays out of World War II. Um, Spain, the Spanish Civil War is indeed a proxy conflict for the fascist, but in of itself, Spain is not involved in World War II. Now, who is involved in World War II, if you go over one slide, is Benito Mussolini. There he is. There's Mussolini. There's young Mussolini. Uh, you, you don't see too many uh, pictures of the young, kind of attractive Mussolini. Uh, well... Attractive is a stretch, I'll give you that one. Uh, Mussolini is born in Italy. Um, he's Italian, clearly. Um, his parents, they're pretty ordinary folk. Uh, his dad's like a blacksmith, I believe. Uh, his mom is a school teacher. Uh, he, uh, his dad is a socialist, though. His dad's kind of got some strong socialist leanings. Um... Uh, he kind of looks after his dad. He kind of likes what's going on with uh, with Italy. Uh, I should mention this. Italy, as we know it, is a fairly young culture, country. Uh, a little bit, I think it's a little bit older than Germany, but not much. Uh, Italy, however, is not known for having the best governments. Uh, pretty much since the Roman Empire, the Italian government as a national force has been kind of weak. I mean, you have Rome, you have like the Papal States for a while in the Middle Ages and stuff, and you have you know, Florence and Milan and all these great little city-states. But uh, as a whole, like, Italian nationalism is is a moving target. Now, Mussolini, as I said, uh, his dad's a big-time socialist. He is a big fan of socialism. He starts out as a socialist. Uh, actually, starts out as a journalist. He starts writing quite a bit, uh, has his own newspaper and stuff. However, his experience during World War I makes him realize maybe socialism isn't going to work. Uh, he doesn't care what's going on in, uh, in Russia. Whenever the communists take over, he's kind of, uh, kind of wary of it. Uh, he's not alone in being wary of the communists taking over Russia. In fact, that's one of the reasons he's able to gain more power. It's fear of communism. But the big thing that gets Mussolini going, he fights in World War I, by the way, for Italy. But as I work. As I said a couple classes back, actually, when we were in person, Italy was treated pretty poorly by the Treaty of Versailles. Remember, Italy switches sides midway through the war. 
Midway during World War I, Italy switches sides. They switch from the Central Powers to the Allies. And so when it comes to negotiation time, Italy's out there expecting, hey, we're going to get all the stuff. We, we switch sides. You know, we're on the winning side now. Let's get some of that sweet, sweet money or that sweet, sweet land. That's what Italy needs, uh, in particular land. Uh, Mussolini later becomes convinced that uh, Italy desperately needs land to grow and expand and become a nice, big, young, strong country. Uh, it wants what other countries get. We'll talk about that in a little while. However, Italy gets nothing from the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, they don't get money. They don't get territory. They don't get reparations. And Mussolini feels that it's a raw deal. Uh, this resentment is strong. You're going to see this with Japan, actually, too. That it's not, a, it's not an exaggeration to say that the Treaty of Versailles was the dress rehearsal for World War II. Pretty much the Treaty of Versailles all but guaranteed there would be a Second World War. Uh, Mussolini, however, he starts expanding fairly early. I mean, by early as 1920, he already has his own personal army uh, called the Black Shirts. Guess why they call them the Black Shirts? You're right, because they wear black shirts. That's, that's pretty literal. Also, personal army is another one of those terms that never ends well. Up there with secret police and dictator for life. Uh, Mussolini is, uh, he's an interesting cat. So, Italy in this time period has a king. Uh, has a king. Uh, the king's name is not important, uh, really. I mean, if you really want to know, it's... Uh, God, it's King Emmanuel something or other. Uh, king Victor Emmanuel III. I will never ask you to know King Victor Emmanuel III. But just know that Italy has a king. Italy has a king. They also have a prime minister. Uh, Mussolini gets himself appointed prime minister by the Italian king saying, hey, we've got a bad communist problem. Uh, remember the communists call for worldwide communist revolutions after uh, Russia? And a lot of European countries are in fear that the communists are going to do the same thing here. Uh, remember, the communists killed the czar. The, the, the communists killed well, all of the czar's family. And so there's a fear that other heads of state could have the same fate. And Mussolini taps into this. He tells the king of Italy he needs to be appointed prime minister because he's the only one who can root out the communist problem. Now, this is something that Hitler also does. And by the way, the time period around this is the early 1920s, like 1921, 1922, uh, before Hitler. This is Mussolini somebody that Hitler, I don't want to say idolizes, but emulates and kind of mimics a lot of things of. Now, I got to go to Roman antiquity for a second. Because in ancient Rome, we're not even, not even the Roman Empire, but the Roman Republic, there's this idea that in a time of crisis, the Senate could appoint one person to lead all of Rome. If there's a very big time of crisis, if armies are at the gates of Rome, you know, if somebody needs to leave the country through a time of crisis, they can't depend on the multitude of the Senate. They need to appoint one person. Uh, probably the best example of this, according to Roman lore, is Cincinnatus. Uh, Cincinnatus was a general. However, there was a time of crisis. I believe there was an invading army or something. And so the Roman Senate sends messengers to Cincinnatus saying, hey, come to Rome. It's an emergency. And so Cincinnatus leaves his fields, goes to Rome for about three weeks with a complete and utter control, and comes back three weeks later, goes back to his fields. He is hailed as the ideal. 
Uh, Cincinnatus is the namesake of the city of Cincinnati. Also, George Washington formed the Order of Cincinnatus, and he was a member for his entire life, if you want a fun conspiracy theory. Uh, he's a member of the Order of Cincinnatus his entire life. It claims it can take over the government whatever it wants. Uh, kind of in a time of crisis, that's some fun conspiracy theory fodder for you. Now, what's not a conspiracy theory is the title. The title that the Roman Republic gave to this individual is dictator. The idea being, in Roman history, there is a precedent for, in a time of emergency, giving all emergency powers to one person and naming them dictator. And Mussolini wants that title. He tells the king of Italy, yo, king, uh, Victor Emmanuel III, it's bad. Uh, there's a lot of communists. And I'm the only one who can write it out, but I need more power. So this is pretty much the king willingly giving his power over to an individual. And, of course, Victor Emmanuel is uh, hesitant for very, 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 very obvious reasons. And he hesitates. And so Mussolini calls for his black shirts uh, the night of October 27th and early morning of October 28th to march on Rome, to demand the old prime minister resign, uh, declare martial law, pretty much appoint Mussolini dictator. And it happens. The black shirts march on Rome, and Mussolini becomes all-powerful. Theoretically, he's just just a prime minister. However, it's pretty obvious he is taking full power. So once Mussolini gets put into power, he starts calling himself El Duce. Uh, Duce basically means boss. Uh, literally the boss. He calls himself the boss. Uh, he was boss of the fascist party. Now he's boss of Italy. Now, Mussolini is promising a return to antiquity, a return to glory. If you go over one slide, you'll see some of the propaganda of, you know, Mussolini on horseback, uh, promising a return to the Roman Empire. He promises Rome a return to glory. He's going to bring Italy back to the good old days, back when everybody, you know, respected Rome, back when people wouldn't give Rome a raw deal in treaties, back when if Italy was on your side during a war, you would make gosh darn sure they got their due. Now, he's able to do this through fear. Uh, Mussolini has a cult of personality about himself, but he also has a straight-up police state. Uh, he has straight-up secret police that pretty much keep everything in check. Mussolini uses very strong-arm tactics. Uh, he will, you know, torture is not off the table, holding hostages, doing all sorts of things really to combat the Depression, which, well, it's actually the 20s in this time period, but the idea that he is going to make things better. And weirdly enough, Mussolini actually has decent, decent, not great, but decent support of the people. There's this old phrase that Mussolini, you know, he had his problems, but he made the trains run on time. And that's, that's the shtick. Yeah, Mussolini's brutal. Yeah, if you cross him, he might kill you or do worse. I mean, he has a secret police. But you know what? Hey, we're Italy, and we got the trains running on time. You know, people are going to work. And if you look at some of this propaganda, go over one slide, you'll see salute the douche, you know, sal salute the boss, salute Mussolini. You'll see there is a cult of personality around himself. 
the idea that Mussolini is the Italian government. Mussolini is Italy. There is so much propaganda, it's not even funny. You know, Mussolini takes over pretty much everything. He wants to show himself as a, you know, he's a, he's a great sportsman, he's a good musician. Uh, this idea that Mussolini is capable of doing whatever he wants. Um, all these kind of public works projects, you know, not quite the old school bread and circuses, but eh, pretty much that. Pretty much that. Now, the thing is, by 1935, by 1935, Mussolini's been in power for almost a decade, but he needs to get territory. He needs to get land. He doesn't use the term Liebenspisch like Hitler does. The idea that it needs living space, but kind of the same thing. The idea that um, Italy needs room to grow. And he has to find somewhere to invade. Now, he doesn't want to invade Europe because, you know, they're European countries. The, the war just happened. He doesn't want to risk another world war. He looks somewhere else. And he looks south to Africa. Now, the problem with Africa is that pretty much everything in Africa has already been colonized. Except for one place. Now, some of you more scholarly, some of you who already know this sort of stuff, you're like, ah, ah, Tully, hang on. Uh, there were two places in Africa that were never colonized. Uh, Liberia was most certainly never colonized. To which I'm like, okay, yeah, technically Liberia was never colonized, but come on, it was made by the American Colonization Society for former slaves from America. The capital is Monrovia. Eh. Uh, it has a lot of foreign influence. But the one place that hadn't been conquered, hadn't been colonized in all of Africa is Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia is a symbol for a lot of Pan-Africans, uh, the African diaspora, uh, Africans not living in the continent of Africa, uh, black people, for lack of a better term. It's almost something like Wakanda, okay, in the sense that it had never been conquered. It had never been colonized by the Americans or the Europeans. Not the Americans. Americans didn't do anything in Africa other than Liberia. Uh, never been colonized by the uh, Europeans. Uh, it has a long history. Uh, for instance, uh, Christianity has been in Ethiopia since uh, the Book of Acts, at least. Uh, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Likewise, Judaism has been in Ethiopia since... Gosh, Solomon. Uh, theoretically, the Queen of Sheba was from Ethiopia. So there's a sense that, like, you know, Ethiopians are kind of proud of the fact that, hey, you know, everything that's civilized, the idea that um, Europeans are coming to Africa to spread the gospel, to be missionaries, they can't do that to Ethiopia because Ethiopia's had Christianity for a lot longer than Europe certainly has. But Ethiopia also is able to do this by conquering other uh, African countries. They kind of colonize and imperialize so they don't get imperialized. Some Japan actually kind of does too, which we'll talk about later. Now, the emperor of Ethiopia is this man right here, Haile Selassie. Haile Selassie becomes a very sympathetic figure because he tries. He tries to put up a valiant defense, but the Ethiopians, they just can't handle a modern war. Um, Italy's got, like, tanks and airplanes, and Ethiopia's got, like, rifles and horses. It's a pretty one-sided affair. Uh, Haile Selassie is ultimately forced to flee. He ultimately flees to London, and he starts giving speeches to anybody who would listen, saying, hey, my people are dying, uh, Italy's being really horrible to me, they shouldn't have done this, they're, they're calling this out of false pretenses. 
And it, gain, it gains a lot of sympathy. Uh, later on, fun fact, uh, Haley Selassie becomes viewed as a messianic figure in Rastafarianism. Uh, Rastafarianism is uh, Jamaican belief system, like, you know, your Bob Marley types, you know, they that's Rastafarianism. They believe he is like a messianic figure, semi-divine. Um, it's really interesting whenever Haley Selassie later meets some of these Rastafars and they're like, Oh my gosh, you're 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 sacred. You're like Jesus. He's like, oh, whoa, no, 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 no. Please don't worship me. That's weird. So Italy does indeed conquer. The problem is Italy loses the PR battle. It's taken a lot of time and a lot of resources to take over Ethiopia. Even though this should be a very, very, very easy conflict, it's not great. It's not great whatsoever. And that kind of does it for Mussolini up to the beginning of the war. Uh, by the beginning of World War II, Mussolini's fairly entrenched in Africa. Um, they need help with their allies, the Germans, to get things settled. But, like I said, this is not chronological, so we're going to move on to the next and final dictator, one you've most certainly heard of. So if you skip over one slide, you're going to see a picture of a little baby. And if you think that baby is cute, congratulations, you just said baby Hitler was cute. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Hitler, y'all. We're talking about Hitler, mainly Hitler's early life, how he gets into power. Uh, we're going to talk about him as, like, Chancellor of Germany next class when we get into, like, early World War II. But let's talk about early Hitler. So as you might have heard, Germany had it a lot worse than any other country during the Great Depression. Things were very bad in Germany, y'all. Things were very bad in Germany. Uh, Germany was not doing great. They had to pay all the reparations for World War One, even though they're like, wait, didn't Archduke die or something? Uh, they were not allowed to have much of an economy. Uh, they were not allowed to have a military. Uh, this was the whole, you know, you've got grounded because you broke your parents' car and you can't leave the room for any reason, but your parents won't let you get a job because you're grounded type of thing. And this worked out okay during the Great Depression as long as Germany could borrow money from the U.S. to use to pay back the British and the French. But after the Great Depression happened and all the money went away, things got really bad in Germany. Now, even before that, things in Germany are doing pretty awful. Uh, before World War I, the German mark, which is the German currency, uh, around 1914, it was something around four to five marks for dollar, okay? So, you know, four marks to a dollar, That's that was a pretty basic exchange rate. It's nothing too crazy. It sounds okay. Uh, by 1923, it took about four or five trillion, trillion, with a T, marks to equal a dollar. Germany goes through some horrible hyperinflation during the Weimar Republic. That's the uh, republic between World War I and Hitler and Germany. Uh, inflation is awful. Inflation is really bad. People were, like, using bank notes as, you know, wallpaper or uh, toilet paper because it is awful. Now, here's the thing. If it takes five trillion marks to equal a dollar and Germany owes several billion dollars to England and France... How many, I don't even know what that number, if you put that in your calculator, you'd break it. Uh, a quadrillion, sorry, uh, a trillion times a billion? Uh, yeah, you'd, you'd break a calculator. You'd have to go to, like, scientific, you know, notif ugh. I haven't taken math class in a long time, so I don't even know those numbers. Uh, 
So things are pretty bad in Germany. Things are pretty desperate in Germany. So that's kind of the condition. Of all the countries that we're talking about, Germany had it the worst. Uh, Germany was really bad during the Great Depression. Now, Hitler is not from Germany. He's from neighboring Austria. But he's from a kind of border area of Austria that, you know, has a lot of German culture. Uh, that's one of the legacies of Bismarck's uh, Kulturkampf, which is his little culture war, this idea that whenever Bismarck unifies Germany into its modern state, uh, unifying Prussia and all these other little tiny Germanic states into a single country called Germany, uh, he starts really promoting German culture, German language, kind of this middle-class value. And it, it kind of expands outside of Germany, into Austria, which is where Hitler is born. Like I said, he's kind of born in a border area. He does grow up speaking German, but he speaks with a very strong Austrian accent. And Hitler is born in a very kind of average, boring, middle-class existence. Uh, Hitler is born in 1889... Um, his parents are, you know, pretty ordinary folks. Uh, his dad's, uh, I think he's like a customs clerk or like a, he's some sort of low level, low level bureaucrat, very stable, very middle class. Um, daddy Hitler was able to make a pretty, pretty comfortable life for Adolf and his siblings. Um, so it's all pretty, pretty normal, pretty average. Um, you know, his dad, he, he might be kind of like you and your parents. His dad wants, you know, baby Hitler to grow up nice and well and do his own thing, have a nice middle-class job. But Hitler doesn't want to do that. Hitler wants to go to art school. Hitler's convinced he's a great artist and he wants to go to art school. His dad forbids it. His dad's like, look, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with art. You could, you could do that as like a, as a hobby. Uh, you know, but maybe you should think about something which might pay the bills a little bit better. Maybe your parents have had that same conversation with you. I'm not comparing your parents to Hitler's parents. I'm not saying you're baby Hitler. But this, it's a very normal conversation. You know, hey, maybe you shouldn't major in that. You know, maybe you should major in something else. You need to think about your career. And so Hitler's dad wants him to go into kind of low-level bureaucracy like he is. Maybe become a customs clerk. You know, Hitler's dad is not against art, but he's like, you know what? It's very hard to make a living as an artist. But Hitler really wants to go to art school. And when Hitler's a young man, I think he's just a teenager, his father dies. His father dies, and uh, when his dad dies, when he's like, gosh, how old is he? He's like a teenager. Hitler inherits some money. And Hitler's mom's like, you know what? You can use your dad's money to go to art school. Pay for tuition for art school. So Hitler finally gets a chance to go to art school. And if you, if you look over one more slide, you will see some of Hitler's art. Uh, to the left, you'll see one of his little postcards. Hitler did a lot of uh, postcards. To the right, you're going to find a really creepy one. Uh, that is the Madonna and Child, drawn by Adolf Hitler. Yeesh. Anywho, whenever Hitler, Hitler goes to art school, he realizes, wait, they're trying to teach me. Like, he just thought he'd go to art school and all the art teachers would be like, oh my gosh, you're wonderful. But then he realizes, um, hey, they're telling me to improve stuff, like br brush strokes and stuff like that. And so he drops out after about a semester or so. He drops out for uh, after about a semester or so. And he uh, kind of runs out of money, too. 
so he he doesn't do that well. He tries to apply to a fancier art school. He gets rejected a couple of times. It's like, maybe you should go to architecture school. He doesn't like it. So he kind of becomes a bum. His mom dies. He becomes a bum. He kind of vagabonds around uh, Vienna for a while, uh, painting little postcards like the one you see. He becomes a drifter, honestly. Doesn't really do much much. Kind of a bohemian life. It's not very romanticized. And uh, if you look at this picture, this is actually a fun little picture. I believe this is in Munich, I believe. Uh, this is when World War One is announced. When World War One is announced, Hitler is kind of living the bum's life. And uh, this picture is literally a crowd shot of when World War One was announced. And then all of a sudden, many years later, somebody's like, hey, is that Hitler? Is that Hitler there? And they, like, zoom in, and turns out it's Hitler, and he would have been there. They figured out, like, he would have been there finding out about World War One. And in World War One, Hitler is pretty happy. Hitler gets a job. Hitler is able to serve in the military. Now, at first, he tries to enlist in the Austrian military. You know, he finds out that the soldiers are needed. Uh, soldiers get paid pretty well. So he applies for the Austrian military. And in the Austrian military, he gets rejected. He gets rejected for some medical reason. We don't know what exactly. There are rumors that he has an undescended testicle. Uh, we don't know exactly. We just know he's not medically cleared to serve. And he's kind of bummed because he, you know, he's supposed to serve in Austria's military. However, about a year or so later, he is able to enlist in Germany's military. Uh, they weren't as strict about the whole medical requirements because they're a year into like a meat grinder. Uh, they just want fresh bodies. So Hitler enlists in the German military. He becomes a messenger, which is ordinarily a fairly safe job. It's not the most glamorous job. Uh, you are going to and from the front lines, of course, but it's nothing too inherently dangerous. Uh, he's not on the front lines. He's not really in no man's land, like, ever. He's never really in the trenches. However, he does get injured by a gas attack. Uh, Hitler does not like gases. And so during one of these uh, attacks where he's just... He's doing his messenger job. He gets attacked by a gas. It's really bad. Could have easily killed him. And while he's recovering in the hospital, the war ends. And at first he's like, okay, there's a ceasefire, whatever. But then as time goes on, he gets a little bit more, a little bit more horrified. He hears more stuff about how, hey, you know, this Treaty of Versailles is saying Germany is responsible for paying. And Hitler's like, wait, why are we responsible they're saying Germany's responsible for the war. Why are we responsible for the war? Didn't an archduke die or something? I don't know. And so Hitler becomes more despondent. But also Hitler realizes now that the war's over, he's out of a job. He doesn't exactly have a lot of skills. I mean, he's a art school dropout. He, uh, you know, he served as a messenger, which is not exactly a high-skilled opportunity. He's not going to get his, uh, he's gets a medical discharge, but it's nothing too special. He notices he doesn't have a lot of skills. And while he's recovering, the German military offers him a job. They say, Hitler, we want you to go undercover for us. We heard about uh, what's happening over in Russia. We heard about the communists saying they're going to have worldwide communist revolutions. And Karl Marx is pretty clear, if you read the Communist Manifesto, it should happen in Germany first. And they're afraid that Germany is going to go communist. It's pretty close to Russia. Uh, the Soviets seem to want Germany to go communist. And so Hitler is charged with going undercover to various unions, various workers' groups, and find out if 
they have communists in there, if the communists are going to try something. Now, the first one he's told to infiltrate is the German Workers' Party. I'm not going to tell you what it is in German, because it's a long name that I'd write on the board nearly, and have y'all try to sound it out. It's funny, but eh, we're not going to do that right now. So Hitler goes to his first meeting. You know, he's supposed to be undercover, and he likes what he hears. He hears some of this rhetoric. He's like, wow, this is great. I could, I could do something about this. I could do something pretty fun about this. And so Hitler, Hitler expands. He, he tries to get himself appointed to the party's leadership, even though he's supposed to be undercover. Um, this works out pretty well. Uh, Hitler's a pretty good speaker, they find out. He's good for recruiting people. He talks about his experience in World War One, how it doesn't really like mesh with the German ideals, basically how Germany gets screwed by the Treaty of Versailles, how we need to be wary of communists. He also renames the party to the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which is a mouthful. Uh, he shorts it to Nazi, which is, if you look at the German words for National and Socialist, first two letters are Nazi. It's the Nazi Party. This is the Nazi Party. It's the theoretically the German National, sorry, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. That's a lot of words. Uh, it isn't really socialist. I mean, you hear people online say, like, well, Hitler was a socialist because the uh, you know, the Nazi means socialist. Well, here's the thing. Uh, Hitler's definitely more fascist than socialist. Germany's got a long history of socialism. If you look at, like, early, just whenever Bismarck put the nation together, it has a lot of socialist ideals, you know, this idea of the guaranteed pension and healthcare and stuff like that. There's socialist elements in Germany itself, and so Hitler probably changed the name of that to appeal to Germans' kind of natural socialist leanings because of the history of the country. It would be like, I don't know, something in America calling itself like the Federalist Party, or like the the Democracy Party, even though they may not be too democratic or too Federalist. You know, I think the Federalist is a better example. Let's just say a new political party comes out like, we're the Federalist Party, and they're not really Federalist, but they're just kind of taking some of the language. So that's Hitler. He's now head of the Nazi party. He's getting more popular. Uh, the, the Nazi party is growing in popularity. Remember, he's supposed to be undercover for the military. This kind of comes ahead in 1923 in Munich at the Bierhall Putsch. Uh, basically, Hitler throws a rally in a beer hall. Now, a beer hall, do not think a bar. Uh, think more like a saloon, which we talked about in the early cities, except it's a lot bigger. Uh, beer halls in this time are places where workers can come to meet. It's not uncommon for political parties to give speeches there, politicians to give speeches. That's not unusual. So the fact that somebody is holding a political rally in a beer hall is not that unusual. Now, what is unusual is after this kind of rally, Hitler takes 2,000 people to try to take over the government. Uh, that's unusual. Uh, that's weird. <laughs> and when he makes it to the, you know, the, the government building, uh, he and his followers get arrested. Uh, the military is really not happy about this because remember he was hired to like go undercover, not lead the organization. Um, that, that's like, Hey, you're, you're, you're going undercover to like, you know, <laughs> you're going undercover to find out who the mafia is. And then you become leader of the mafia family. It's not, it's not a great look. And so Hitler is arrested. He's arrested for the Beer Hall Putsch, and he gets sentenced to five years in prison. Now, in prison, if you skip over one slide, you will see he has a lot of time to write. 
He has a lot of time to think about stuff, uh, and he starts writing quite a bit. He he writes down all of his issues, all of his all of his complaints, everything he thinks bad about the world, into one book, which he calls My Struggle. Now, in German, it's Mein Kampf. Kampf means struggle. And the term Kampf, um, he's, he's also kind of hitting back to Bismarck, who has the Kulturkampf, uh, the culture war, this idea that, you know, he's trying to make Germany better. It's Hitler saying it's my struggle. It's his struggle against the world. He kind of cements his mentality for what's going on in the world. Basically, he says that Germany was screwed over, and then he blames it on one group of people, the Jews. Now, this in of itself is not that unusual. Anti-Semitism is not invented by Adolf Hitler. Even in Germany, anti-Semitism has a long history. Anti-Semitism has a pretty long history in America. Uh, why? I don't know exactly why. I know most immediately... Uh, during the Great Depression, Jews are often the target of... They get singled out quite a bit because even though Jews are a smaller percentage of the German population, and they actually do tend to be a little bit lower on the socioeconomic scale, they tend to be more communal, and so it looks like they're doing better. And there's rumors that the Jews have the money and they screw over the German nation. Now, this book becomes a bestseller. Pretty much, Germans really take to this. Some of the most the most powerful phrase you'll ever hear is, it's not your fault. If somebody is able to convince you that your problems are not your fault, you'll believe them. Nobody wants to believe that anything is their fault. But the thing is, once they convince you it's not your fault, they can get you to believe whatever you want as whose fault it is. And that's what Hitler does. He convinces the German people it's not their fault that they're poor. It's not their fault that they got screwed over by World War I. It's not their fault that there's hyperinflation everywhere. It's the fault of somebody else. It's the fault of the Jews. And by the time that Hitler comes out of jail, he's very popular. Uh, mein Kampf, after World War II, was not allowed to be printed in German until actually maybe five or six years ago. I was able to read part of it in German back when I was taking German for reading knowledge. It's it's a it's a it's a harsh book. Uh, if I mean I'm not gonna I will never ever recommend you read Hitler, but if you do read it, you will see that he's he's arguing, and by the time he gets out of prison, he is just wildfire. He is one of the most popular people in Germany. The Nazi Party spreads. The Nazi emblem spread. Uh, the swastika. Oh yeah, the swastika. Uh, fun fact about swastikas: they're a very ancient Hindu, not even Hindu, Vedic symbol. Uh, very ancient. Uh, he claims it ties to the Aryans. Who? Okay, the term Aryan now just means like Hitler's fantasy of all white, blue-eyed, all blonde hair, blue-eyed people. Uh, the actual term Aryan is like this kind of proto group, like ancient, ancient history. We don't know too much about them. Uh, the, the swastika itself is not Aryan. He just claims it's Aryan. It's an ancient Hindu symbol for good luck. Uh, if you ever go to, like, India and, like, look around at the temples, you're going to see a lot of swastikas all over the place. It's not because the ancient Hindus were, were, were racist or Nazis. It's just an ancient symbol. Uh, likewise, in my own research, uh, I, I had to read pretty much every issue of the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis, for my work on W.E. Du Bois. And let me tell you something. In the 1920s, every issue of the crisis had a swastika on it. 
So you might read that and be like, oh my god, that W.E. Du Bois is racist. No, he's he's not a Nazi. It's just an ancient symbol that Hitler kind of co-ops for the Nazi party. Now, Hitler is insanely popular as a speaker. He's very popular as a speaker, and because of that, the Nazi party grows in power and authority. Uh, Hitler's speaking technique, remember, he always speaks German with a pretty pronounced Austrian accent. Uh, he's not a natural orator, but he's he refines his craft. He usually would start out very... Very calm, very, very collected, but then, then the emotion would get too high, and then by the end he's just yelling and it just whips up the crowd into, into a frenzy. And in 1933, he is elected Chancellor of Germany, and what's scary about Hitler is he is actually democratically elected at first. Now, he does not get a majority. Uh, most countries, other than the United States, when it comes to legislatures, uh, they have a lot of different parties, and so definitely parties make coalitions. So the Nazi party never gets a majority of the German population to vote for it, but they do get a plurality. They get the most of all the different groups. So it's not a majority, but it's the most of all the other different groups. Uh, one of his first actions as chancellor of Germany is to outlaw all parties except the Nazi party. So that's one way to ensure that you're, you get some you know, security in office. Likewise, he makes his own private army. Uh, they're called the, uh, the Brown Shirts. Why does he call them the brown shirts? Because black shirts have taken. Uh, this would later become the SS. Now, I'm not as knowledgeable of the, of the SS as Dr. Wilson is, so I'm not even going to pretend to go deep into this, but just know that's Hitler's personal army. And that's kind of the status quo I want you to understand for before World War II. Next class, we're going deep into World War II, but if you go over... I have a few little conclusions for you. Number one, all these countries are in a very, very bad state. These are not very bad countries, inherently. And all these people come to power legally, and I should put an asterisk by that. It's legally, with an asterisk. Because Hitler is indeed democratically elected. Um, Mussolini takes power through the dictator, which is an ancient custom. Franco is able to take over through a civil war, but it's... Okay, maybe that's stretching the difference legally. But they're able to stay in power because they appeal to the needs of the people. They appeal to the desires of the people. They're appealing to the fantasies of the people. You know, they want to say that Italy is going to become awesome. Uh, Germany will be re uh, have retribution for what happened unfairly during World War I. Spain will become a great nation. It's all these things that they are appealing to. The thing is, they all become pretty violent. All these guys become violent, they all use secret police, and they took the countries a lot further than anybody ever intended. And that's how we're going to end it today. Now, of course, I, if you go one more slide, it's kind of a joke slide where you see the best buddies, uh, the idea that here Hitler and Mussolini very happy to see each other, likewise, very happy Franco with Hitler. But with that, that does it for Tully's Take on History Today. Like I said, it's kind of a bummer one, but I do want you to kind of understand where Europe is, and particularly Germany, before we get into World War II. Yes, I know this is an American history course, but I feel it's important for us to know about this. Also, I believe we are up to a point where we will be having our next quiz. Our next quiz is going to be on this material. Uh, it is going to be on, uh, let's see, no, it, well, well, okay, the quiz is going to be after World War II. 
So, quizzes after World War II, but I wouldn't be surprised if the quiz has a good bit of questions about this. So, with that being said, uh, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, this is Dr. Stuart Tully for class. Uh, class dismissed. Have a good one. Stay safe, y'all.